You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA today. I'm still out in Washington, D.C. Came out to the eastern part of the country, to the nation's capital for the NCGA's Corn Congress that is happening this week. Today, all of the delegates for Corn Congress are off meeting with their legislators on the Hill, and we've got other news to talk about on today's program. If you've been watching the commodity markets, we have seen a bit of a rally over the past 30 hours. Jamie Kohaki of Paragon Investments will join us in just a minute to break down what's happening here in the grain trade. And then we're going to talk with Randy Schultz. He's the Senior Vice President for Commercialization at Interplant. They're a plant genetics company coming up with a new trait that they are going to incorporate into plants that allows these plants to talk in a way. It's going to be very neat technology. We'll talk with Randy here in segment three, and then we're going to close with meteorologist Greg Solier looking out to what to expect in the forecast. Before we jump into all of that, however, let's talk markets. Jamie Kohaki, Paragon Investments, joins us now. Jamie, this is quite a rally happening here in the corn and soybean markets. What's the fundamental reason we're seeing these buyers in today? Yeah, you're exactly right, uh, Mike. Good to hear your voice again. And uh, it's been a wild trading session pretty much a whole entire week. Funds are caught short in corn and adding longs on into beans. We've kind of seen a couple different factors really light this market up. The first one with Russia and Ukraine, the corridor being shut down again, and the bombing of Odessa and also of Azov. Then you throw on the other side of ledger with weather, dryness, little bit of heat again up north of I-80, northeast Iowa, southern Minnesota, you know, experience some shorts out there as well in the corn market. Jamie, this Russian news, we had the Black Sea grain deal cause some headlines, some wheat market moves over the weekend. Then it seemed as though the trade put it behind them, but now it's back. Has something fundamental changed in the Black Sea or is the trade just now concerned about overall supply? Yeah, overall supply, I would say more than anything, Russia did give the the UN a 90-day ultimatum this morning to get something resolved there, more per you know what Russia wants. But the wheat balance sheet is tight, and I've been kind of surprised you know this whole week. Depending on what we're trading, you know wheat should be up you know 50, 60 cents compared to what corn has done you know per the per the Black Sea. And if we're trading weather, you know why aren't beans you know leading the way? So it's kind of been you know a kind of confusing trade here, and I think it's more just short covering in corn based on a little bit of weather and just some light light short covering at times in the wheat uh, sector. But uh, fundamentally. If you look, you know, ahead, you know, six months, there's still a lot, a lot of headwind with big supplies and both corn and beans globally. And also our crop looks pretty decent here as well. Crop looks pretty decent. Jamie, we've seen nearly a 50 cent rally here in the December corn contract this week. December trading now north of 550, 553 and change. Given the fact we still have large crops out there, given the fact that, uh, you know, we are seeing more moisture across the Corn Belt, is this a selling opportunity for producers or is there still more gas in the tank? I think this is a selling opportunity for producers up in here, uh, you know, especially, I think, the 575 area. That's the 200 daily moving average. And I think if somehow we could kick up there yet this week, I would be a pretty aggressive seller. You know, we still got a massive harvest going on down in Brazil. You know, our exports are horrible, and now we're getting higher prices. The dollar has weakened up to about 14 month lows, but uh, you still look at the global markets, and uh, I think it's going to be hard to, you know, hold in up in here longer term unless we do, you know, maybe see a, you know, 110 degree heat across, you know, Iowa, Illinois yet sometime in August. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we are getting through that pollination. Jamie, we've got a little more room to run here on the soybean crop. We're, we're getting close to August, getting close to get concerned about that crop and the heat. Where do you think the potential is for soybean market movement here over the next four weeks? Yeah, I, I think the beans, you know, still could have one more push despite, you know, this massive rally that we've seen. You know, we're talking, you know, $11 beans, you know, just, you know, roughly, you know, the beginning of uh, June on the big sell-off that we've had. Now we've been straight up since then. But uh, longer term, I think you have to be a seller in beans. 
especially out into like November 24 soybeans. You look at the acreage numbers down in South America, you base off the carryouts that we've seen. I would be looking more out into the 24, you know, areas to maybe start to put a hedge on there. But to hear short term, you know, you get in that 1440, 1460 area, I would start to hedge up here on the 23 note crop. Jamie, what are you seeing on basis here around the country? It's been strong. We've seen livestock producers still getting that demand out for corn. But as we get closer to harvest, is it starting to weaken anywhere? Uh, nothing major that hasn't been historically, you know, different than what we've seen maybe the last 10 years. We will see, you know, a lot of, like, you know, some plants go offline the first couple of weeks of, you know, August, you know, get everything ramped back up for harvest, not to, you know, get crazy and, you know, and bump the basis sharply higher. But uh, I think everything will stay firm here for another couple of weeks, and then it will start to really start to back off mid to late August again into fall. All right, mid to late August, the timeline there. Jamie, let's turn our focus over to the cattle complex. 50-cent rally in corn, definitely throwing up some red flags in the feeder cattle market. Saw some weakness yesterday. Looks like it's continuing today. Is there more downside movement with December corn at 550 in feeder cattle? I think there is, just just based off short-term. Pull the September feeders back down around the 243 mark would be my number. You know, the, the cattle market had a sharp rally cash trade, you know, on fire, uh, you know, supply is very, very tight. And then now we're kind of just seeing, you know, some of that long money come out of the market here, like you're saying, based on this big corn rally that we've had. But uh, this is an amazing market. This, you know, in the fed cattle that we've seen with the cash prices leading the way, tight supplies up north, cash markets even kind of merging up in the south as well, too. Historically, you know, these dog days of summer is a bearish time period for cattle but we haven't seen any type of, you know, seasonal setback, you know, just based on the tight supplies. Boxes have weakened up just a smidge, but the movement has been good here lately. And I think any type of sharp break in the live cattle, especially by going into fall. Jamie, from the processor's perspective, are we still seeing slaughter run at rates similar to where it was a year ago, or are they cranking that back? trying to crank it back uh, this week. You know, a lot of plants are going to 32-hour work weeks. I mean, they're pulling, you know, every pretty much trick out of the playbook to not have to, you know, bid up, you know, plus 190 in the north or not. And uh, we're going to see that, I think, happen for the next probably through the end of July of, you know, really setting back and slowing the chains down. All right, Jamie, as you look out before we let you go, what are some issues here over this next week you're keeping an eye on for market movement? Yeah, really here, I'm just watching, you know, a lot, a lot of weather north of I-80. That's kind of the target zone right now, you know, and watching this money flow with corn. Are the funds going to stay short? Are they going to add on up in here on this rally or not? And also to this big Brazilian uh, harvest coming online. Fundamentally, with, you know, balance sheets and all that, we probably won't see anything until the end of September. And if any adjustments per acreage have been as well. All right. We'll be watching lots more news yet for this market to digest as we get through 2023. We've been talking markets here with Jamie Kohaki of Paragon Investments. Jamie, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today. Thank you, Mike. Good to hear, hear your voice. Same to you, sir. And folks, stick with us. Thank we'll you. have more AOA coming up right here in just a moment. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The landscape of media has changed, and people are more skeptical than ever about where they get their news and information. While major news outlets show decreasing credibility, your local farm radio station still shows strong marks. In a recent survey, farmers rated information from their farm broadcasters as almost twice as reliable as major news outlets. Farm radio continues to be transparent, honest, and trustworthy. 
This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Paid non-attorney spokesperson. Are you over the age of 60 and been diagnosed with lung cancer? If so, you and your family may qualify for a cash award. Our experienced attorneys are standing by to evaluate whether you have a lung cancer claim that qualifies you for a cash award. The consultation is absolutely free and there is no risk and no money out of pocket. We only receive a fee when we secure you and your family a settlement. 250,000 people are diagnosed with lung cancer every year. You're not alone in this battle. We can help make sure that you and your family are financially safe and that medical expenses are covered. Again, if you've been diagnosed with lung cancer and are over age 60, call now. Don't delay. There are deadlines for filing claims. We're standing by 24-7. Call us at 1-844-903-1744. 1-844-903-1744. That's 1-844-903-1744. Attorney Advertising. William Stephacker Jr. is the attorney responsible for this ad. Main office, Grant, Pennsylvania. May not be available in all states. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike, block. Maintained your health. 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. And in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back to AOA, ladies and gentlemen. We're continuing today, and we've got a focus on Washington, D.C. I mentioned I'm out here for Corn Congress for the National Corn Growers Association, but there's a lot of other issues happening here in this town. Yesterday, House Ag Committee Chairman Glenn G.T. Thompson spoke to reporters at a briefing, and he provided an update as to what to expect from the House Ag Committee as we get deeper into this congressional cycle. Of course, folks, a lot of you know this farm bill the 2018 Farm Bill expires at the end of September here in 2023. House Chairman G.T. Thompson is working to get that process moved forward. But before work begins in earnest again on the Farm Bill, he noted that their next major priority is working on some new laws and language around digital asset market structure. This is crypto, ladies and gentlemen. Interestingly, the House Ag Committee, due to their oversight of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, is a major player in crypto oversight. So this week, uh, the House Ag Committee will be working in conjunction with the House Financial Services Committee. They're working to get this crypto bill out soon. And Thompson said once this issue is done, then they are going to turn their focus to the farm bill. G.T. <laughs> Thompson said, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. However, we do need to get this crypto bill done first. There was also a little note of caution from Chairman Thompson. He was asked whether or not there is going to be a farm bill that will come on the House floor before the bill expires on September 30th. He noted that it is going to be up to the leadership by the time we get to that point in the congressional calendar, but he said there is time for some appropriations bills with the caveat that, quote, September 30th is uncomfortably close. Work will continue as those committees get back into full swing here over the next several days. One issue that has popped up on radars here over the past couple of years, and we see it continuing to intensify across the central part of the country, our conversations around carbon capture and sequestration. We've talked about it here on the program before. There are a number of different ways to do this, effectively capturing the CO2 gas that's coming out of farming operation, ethanol operations, et cetera, capturing it, liquefying it, and then sticking it underground. 
Two proposals are working to capture and liquefy this natural gas and then send it via pipelines to caverns, one outside Decatur, Illinois, one up in the Bakken region in North Dakota, and put the CO2 back in the ground there. Well, landowners have started to grow concerned after eminent domain filings have been reported in Iowa and in South Dakota, and pushback continues to mount. Interesting claim was just filed in Iowa. There is a piece of, of legislation in Iowa law that says that any of these pipelines transporting liquefied uh, materials can qualify for all of the laws for eminent domain and, and property capture. The new argument being brought by a landowner in Floyd County, Iowa, in conjunction with the Sierra Club, says that the CO2 gas that will be running through these pipelines isn't liquefied. They say instead this CO2 gas running through the pipeline is supercritical, which means it's below the point of liquefaction. And according to George Cummins and his attorney, the people challenging the law in the Iowa court, they say that means that the Summit Carbon Pipeline falls outside of the rules and regulations that are currently allowed for pipelines. Now, one judge so far has called this frivolous and nonsensical, but it is moving forward. It's going to be interesting to see how these different cases play out over the next several months as the hearings are expected to begin later on this year in Iowa. The uh, Iowa Utilities Board is planning an August time date to start those eminent domain hearings. They're also getting underway in South Dakota very shortly as well. There has been an interesting slug of headlines over this past week coming out of the White House. It began last week. We had a White House competition hearing. We're going to be talking about that on Friday's AOA program with Brett Kinsey. He's the president of RCAF organization. They were one of many groups invited last week to the White House to talk about the state of competition in the U.S. economy. Now, their focus certainly was on the meat processing and, and beef handling side, but a lot of folks were at this meeting talking about how to promote competition. We'll talk with Brett about what all came out at that meeting last week. But this week, we're starting to see some follow-on announcements. Yesterday, President Joe Biden announced he has created a new rule on the National Economic Council. This is a group of economists that work for the White House that advise the president on different economic matters. And President Biden has added a new expert to tackle anti-competitive business practices. This is a new position. It's called the Director of Competition Council Policy. And this person's job will be to look at places where anti-competitive activity is happening. And the administration has purposefully set out agriculture, drugs, and labor as three of the sectors that this group is going to be looking to target. She said the White House is looking to build on successes. They noted meatpacking in particular. We've seen several new rules and pronouncements come out of the Biden administration. They also talked about the success of the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, that bill that was passed during coronavirus that gave the American government a little more authority over ocean shippers who weren't taking American goods back overseas with them when they left. And then most recently, the administration announced some changes to consumer junk fees. All of those were recapped in the announcement of this new position. They did not highlight what regions or what sectors of the U.S. economy they might be targeting first. But the fact that agriculture was mentioned means it seems as though we could see a lot more interest in ag competition. And in fact, that announcement was followed up today by another big announcement. And this announcement is huge. It came out this morning. I don't have all of the relevant data. I've contacted several friends in the world of international trade. We'll be bringing more insight onto this most recent announcement. But the guideline announced today are from the Department of Justice and the Federal Trade Commission. And these are guidelines that specify what those two groups will be looking at when two companies propose to merge or acquire one another. These rules and guidelines around mergers and acquisitions get updated every now and again. The most recent time was in 2020. Horizontal mergers were last updated back in 2010. What the administration is trying to do is remove or switch the impact of competition on regulation. In the past, these, uh, these government regulators would look and they'd say, are the American consumers being hurt? Is a lack of competition driving up prices or driving down quality? If it is, then we need to get the government engaged. These new rules and regulations focus on the size of the firm doing the acquiring. And what they're looking at are pledging to take much more close look at acquisitions of large 
firms of much smaller ones. They're thinking specifically, and we see this a lot in agriculture, existing very large multinational tech company, or excuse me, ag companies might look out and they could see an innovative startup doing something different. And that ag company oftentimes will buy that startup to acquire the technology and the intellectual property. Those type of guidelines, these new, uh, excuse me, those type of mergers, these new guidelines suggest might not be allowed because it would be a way for that large multinational company to cut off competition. We don't yet know how all this is going to play out. The Department of Justice and the FTC has insisted in the briefing this morning that the new guidelines are squarely focused on statutes and case law. They're designed to be business model agnostic, but these are pretty widespread approaches to growing a company's operations. And these rules have been in place for 10, 12 years in some cases. So it is a pretty profound rearranging of the industry. Time will tell what sort of impact this could have on growth and development and innovation here in the world of agriculture and, of course, in, in other sectors of the U.S. economy. Earlier on the program, we were talking with Jamie Kohaki about the issues over in Russia, that Black Sea grain deal not getting renewed this past weekend. And then overnight, or I guess over the past two nights, we've seen additional bombing in Ukraine from Russia, notably a considerable amount of grain export infrastructure in Ukraine's Odessa port region was damaged by a Russian attack. The attack destroyed 60,000 tons of grain at the port that should have been loaded and shipped 60 days ago, according to the Ukrainians, but it did not under that Black Sea Grain Initiative. And they say, quote, this nighttime attack put a considerable part of our grain export infrastructure in the port of Chernomorsk out of operation. Additional concerns growing there in Ukraine and Russia and the Black Sea region that whatever crops they do produce might not be able to make it out in an efficient way to the global markets. Finally, one more quick note on trade. We've got news out of Canada. The United Kingdom is looking to join the, the CPTPP. That's the Comprehensive and Progressive Agreement for Trans-Pacific Partnership. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is what we call it here in this country. And uh, this is a five-year-old agreement. Uh, we've got about 14 different countries working together. The UK wants to join it. However, Canadian cattle producers are balking. They say that... Uh, the UK should not be allowed to join because of the restrictive imports they have on Canadian beef going into the UK. More battles ahead on the trade front, no doubt, here in the world of agriculture. But folks, stay with us. We're going to talk innovation when AOA returns. Interplant, bringing new genetic technology to plants that's going to allow them to communicate. Stay here. We'll talk with Randy Schultz when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. At YMCA Summer Camp, Kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. Corn, beans, and wheat are all surging double digits this morning. That's as tensions rapidly escalate in the Ukraine war. Russia apparently launched a second major missile attack on grain and oil facilities at ports near Odessa overnight, supplemented with drone attacks as well. Now, the significance of last night's attack was not missed by the markets, but we must look at it within the context of other events this week. First, Russia formally withdrew from the Black Sea Grain Initiative on Monday following an apparent Ukrainian attack on the bridge that connects Crimea to Russia and which provides a critical supply link for Russia to support its war efforts in southern Ukraine. 
Now, the two may or may not be related, but together they represent an escalation of the war effort. On Monday, the market said it didn't really care about the collapse of the initiative because A, Russia is dumping a lot of cheap wheat on the world market currently, and B, Brazil is dumping a lot of cheap corn on the market. And the third thing is that Ukraine announced that it would implement a plan B to maintain the initiative without Russia's support. Ukraine can continue to move up to 2 million metric tons of exports through other channels, but it will be difficult to move the additional 4 to 5 million metric tons per month that it had been moving through these ports. The two-week outlook for the Midwest looks to warm up and dry out next week into the early days of August as the corn and soybean crops go through critical development stages. Now, the thinking is that it will still continue to be more ridge-running storms in the Midwest, but it will still lean dry. Now, beyond that is a question with some forecasters calling for a hot and dry August, while others are calling for a mild and wet Midwest in August with far different implications for the crops. The VIX is trading near 13 this morning, while the dollar index is trading just over 100. With crude oil prices, they're modestly higher this morning after they consolidated just below the 200-day moving average. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and we're turning our focus next to innovation, innovation in seed genetics. We've seen a number of different trait packages come out in the world of agriculture here over the past 30 years in agriculture, and now there's a new one coming to the fore, a trait package that allows plants to communicate. Joining us now for the details is Randy Schultz. He's the Senior Vice President for Commercialization at Interplant. Randy, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Mike. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so Interplant is about a four-year-old company, and we're developing an entirely new uh, biotech trait platform we call Data Traits. And exactly as you said, that we're coding those plants and, and engineering those plants to be able to communicate various stresses that they experience. So, you know, farmers and agro agronomists know that plants can, you know, tell you what they need. We've been scouting for um, insects and disease pressure, um, you know, they start to yellow and you think, well, maybe they need some nitrogen. But the problem is, is that all of those indicators are way too late. It's way beyond when the plant has actually experienced that stress. So what we're developing is plants that communicate those stresses within 48 hours of experiencing that, that pressure. So with a fungal uh, pathogen, for example, as soon as that plant um, is infected by that fungus, our signals get activated. And the really cool thing is we can see these signals um, in broad daylight from as far as satellite. So satellite, drone, tractor, um, various different ways of detecting these signals. That is fascinating, Randy. And when you say we can see these from as far away from as satellite, we're not looking at them with the naked eye, right? You're reading the color of the plant? That's right. Uh, we use detectors, uh, multispectral imagers, um, to be able to see these signals and and decode what, what they mean for the plant. So plants have evolved to um respond to all sorts of different stresses very specifically whether it's nitrogen deficiency whether it's um, other nutrient deficiencies whether it's drought or pathogen stress biotic stress and so what we do is we um we understand those those responses that the plants are making and we 
encode a fluorescent protein, kind of like screwing in a light bulb, uh, that then enables the plant to make this light signal when, when it's experiencing that specific stress. And so, yeah, we use uh, various detection equipment to be able to see that. Um, and, and the goal is to have the farmer and the agronomist have this very new, powerful, accurate data set where each plant is actually telling you what it needs as opposed to us trying to guess or see it when it's too late. Randy, it sounds like science fiction. The ability for a plant to tell you when it's suffering within 48 hours of feeling the the impact of the, the thing that's causing it stress. But this is in production. Can you tell us a little bit about what production looks like now and where you are in the in the research stage? Yeah, so we've uh, we've developed a number of different biosensor plants. Uh, we're currently focused as our first product concept on soybeans that signal fungal pressure specifically. Um, we have those out in the field this year. We're conducting our first year of field trials, um, and we expect to have those um, in farmers' fields as early as, as next year. That is fantastic. Randy, so for the growers who are experimenting with them or who have the production out on the ground this year, what's been the response? It's been a very interesting growing season. Are the signals going out as expected? Yeah, so... Um, we've got a couple of different locations. We're growing in Missouri this year and then in Davis, California, where we're headquartered. We do most of our experimental work this year in Davis, California. And as you can imagine, California is not exactly soybean country. Um, and we've also experienced quite a bit of, uh, you know, heat, um, and, and some dry weather. So, um, we are still experimenting. We've had some success. Um, but as we look forward, we're going to really move into the Midwest where we can you know, be more in traditional soybean production. All right, pushing more to the Midwest. Randy, I, I've seen a program on the website called Inner Circle. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and how does that help uh, expose growers to the products? Yeah, so very early in the in the company's uh, founding, uh, we reached out to a whole bunch of growers trying to really understand, you know, the impact of the technology we would bring, have them help us design it so that it doesn't, you know, mess up or change their operation too much. And so we ended up with a, a really amazing group of growers across the Midwest representing, you know, half a million acres or so um, of, of production land. And a lot of them have, you know, invested in the company and are really, you know, sort of engaged in helping us deliver a solution that really solves problems and works in their operation. We actually just completed our first Croptastic, uh, it's called, so the Croptastic Conference. Uh, we, we held in Des Moines and a lot of our growers came together where we shared, you know, our progress and, and challenges. And, and it was really a fantastic event. If anybody's interested in joining, you can figure out how to join on our website, interplant.com. Absolutely, folks. Check that out. Randy, whenever we're introducing new genetic traits, of course, we've got to get the green light from the uh, the regulators. Is that something that Interplant has been working on so far? And, and what has USDA said? Yeah, so we recently uh, received approval from the USDA. Uh, so these are non-regulated traits. Um, so we can go out and plant on growers' fields uh, without any restrictions or permitting. So that's the first step. The second step is the FDA. And we're working um, you know, very hard on, on making progress towards, towards FDA approval as well. All right, Randy, let's talk timeline. Getting these seeds out there, getting these genetics into production. I imagine there's there's going to be a rollout. It takes time to get these things all rocketing and rolling. When do you expect farmers to be able to encounter interplant genetics in the commercial world? Yeah, so the really cool thing is we're able to move pretty fast. Um, and having, you know, achieved the first regulatory hurdle enables us to, to start to move to market. Um, so as early as next year, we're going to be working with some of our inner circle growers and we're also setting up a regional um, what we call sentinel plot network uh, with some of the retail uh, companies so we we'll use those sentinel plots to monitor um, on a more regional basis you know pathogen pressure um, and and that sort of thing and also on our inner circle growers uh, farms we'll, we'll be doing a similar type of activity this helps us learn more about how our products perform in different environments and also starts to really get it in the hands of the grower. As we look out beyond that in 2025, 2026, uh, we'll be expanding both that and also getting on more farmers' land as well. Let's talk about the crops. You mentioned soybeans is the, the first crop that this is being developed in, Randy, but I saw a recent announcement that corn is on the radar. Can you fill us in on what you're developing there? Yeah, so we're really excited about getting started in corn. 
Um, our first product concept there um, is a corn nitrogen sensor. So again, instead of waiting for the plants to yellow when it's kind of too late, and instead of maybe broadcasting and applying nitrogen broadly across all of your acres, you can really start to think about managing your operation instead of on a whole field level down to say a meter or a couple meters, square meters level. And we're really excited about that with all the movement in the industry around precision farming. And you've got new technology, for example, one of our partners, John Deere, Sea and Spray. So when we look out in the future, we see a much more precise management of nitrogen use on the farm. And so we were awarded a grant from Wells Fargo working with the uh, uh, world-renowned Donald Danforth Center in, in Missouri. And we'll get started developing those nitrogen sensors in corn. It is incredible, Randy. When you think about what these genetic traits can sense, you mentioned fungal, looking at nitrogen. What other potentials are out there for this sort of technology to let growers know about challenges in the fields? Yeah, so one other um, set of data traits that we're really thinking a lot about are insect uh, sensors. Um, and then in, in corn in particular, you can think a couple of different or extra nutrients, right? So you got N, P, K, all interesting macronutrients. Um, and then again, fungal insect pressure. So we're kind of focused on those as, as the foundational uh, platform for the data traits. All right, let's 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 talk about stacking this technology. This is a data trait, as you mentioned. It's not necessarily a production trait like we've seen in, in some of the other uh, crop modifications. Will Does Interplant envision being able to stack these genetics on top of other genetic improvements as well? Oh, absolutely. Um, yep, that, that's definitely how we see things going forward. Uh, we'll be working with all the genetics uh, providers and they'll be able to integrate these, these into uh, you know, all of their different germplasm and, and, and stack with the other traits that are out there. And then also within the data traits platform, we have different uh, fluorescent colors for the different stresses. So we'll be able to stack the data traits as well. So for example, you can have one color for nitrogen pressure, another for fungal pressure, another for insect pressure, and we can see all of those at the same time just from taking the satellite or tractor image. So it could be it could be a whole tie-dye field if you've got a lot of threats <laughs> going on. Yeah, but but you can't see it with the naked eye as you mentioned earlier. So the plants don't look any different. We use uh, you know specialized detection equipment and algorithms to be able to see those signals. So it's 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 really cool. It is incredible technology, and to see bringing data into the conversation makes so much sense as we look at agriculture growing into the field. Randy, you mentioned you've got growers out there this year. Are there any places you anticipate other growers to be able to get eyes on Interplants technology here ahead of harvest this year? Yeah, if anybody's interested in uh, coming out, like I said, we've got fields in Missouri. we got fields in, uh, in, in the Davis, California area, um, and then we'll actually be going to Argentina for seed increase. Um, and, and some more satellite detection uh, pilot experiments out there. So yeah, exciting uh, path forward. It is very, very exciting, folks. It's so neat to see this innovation developing in the world of agriculture. Randy, if we've got listeners whose curiosity is piqued by what Interplant is bringing to the table, where should they go for more information? Uh, the best place to go to start is, is our website, um, interplant.com. And we also, um, um, you can follow us on Instagram at inner underscore plant. Um, we're also on LinkedIn, so various social media platforms. Get out there, folks. Check them out on Insta. See how these images look in the field. We've been talking with Randy Schultz, the Senior Vice President for Commercialization at Interplant. And Randy, thanks so much for joining us on AOA today. Thank you, Mike. Folks, stick around. We'll dive into the forecast with meteorologist Greg Solier here when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. 
And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference, bite by bite. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Why do you listen? I just want to stay informed while I'm on the go. News on the radio, it's nice because it's just a quick snippet and I don't have to go searching for it or grab a paper. I listen to radio because anywhere that I'm going, I'm listening to music or I'm listening to a talk show or I'm just trying to stay up on current events. I always turn into the radio to see if I need to take shelter, where it's hitting, to see what I need to be preparing for. Why do you listen? Go to whyilisten.com, tell us why you listen, and you have a chance to win $500. Visit whyilisten.com today. Do you know how much one stock of wheat is worth? Well, you're about to find out. Wheat is a member of the grass family that produces a dry, one-seeded fruit commonly called a kernel. There are about 1 million kernels of wheat in a bushel, about 50 kernels per stock, which if we do the math is about 20,000 stocks of wheat per bushel. That means that if a bushel is worth $8, then each stock is worth about 0.04 cents. So, you would need 2,500 wheat stocks to equal $1. Now that one bushel of wheat will yield approximately 42 pounds of white flour or 60 pounds of whole wheat flour. A bushel of wheat makes about 42 pounds of pasta or 210 servings of spaghetti. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. And in the United States, one acre of harvested land yields an average of around 45 to 50 bushels of wheat. So if you ever wondered how much one stock of wheat was worth, now you know. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. At the Veterans Health Administration, we provide life-changing care to over 9 million veterans across more than 1,200 facilities nationwide. Our hands are busy, competent, skilled, healing, helping, and friendly. A place where diverse teams come together hand-in-hand -hand to provide full patient-centered care and where even robots lend a hand. Join hands with us. Learn more at vacareers.va.gov. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. As it is midsummer, the markets are focused closely on what's happening with weather. So are we here on AOA. And joining us now is meteorologist Greg Solier of This Week in Agribusiness. Greg, thanks for taking the time to talk with us today. Hey, nice to be with you on the old radio there, sir. Let's talk first, Greg, about what's the system or excuse me, the situation developing right now in Kentucky and in southern Illinois. I'm understanding we've got some severe flash flooding going on down there. Yeah, they're shutting down the roadways, water running across Interstate 69, eight inches just outside and west of uh, Paducah, the highest total so far, and probably another half inch to an inch on top of that. So I wouldn't be surprised to see some double digit totals come out of the northwestern corner of Tennessee, uh, westernmost Kentucky, where the Wabash and the Ohio come together. We've had uh, seven inches of rain at Carbondale, Illinois, the south end of the Illinois Corn Belt, and uh, one to three inches uh, west and south of uh, St. Louis, and this is kind of the trajectory of these storms. They continue to run the ridge and, and uh, tap into just copious, oppressive uh, moisture, uh, weakening or cooled atmosphere up aloft, and these thunderstorms can cool the atmosphere even more. And so you get off to the races, and it's not quite the look of a derecho, but behaving like one with this right-turning angling effect that'll probably go all the way down into the I-10, I-20 corridor of the uh, southeastern states. And not to be left out of our you know immediate listing area, you get into around uh, Ainsworth, uh, Nebraska, one to two inches there, an inch to, uh, oh, half to an inch uh, just outside of the Black Hills. And this is kind of where these storms, these pockets of energy will likely be uh, originating, uh, the ridge riding or ring of fire storms that get going around the hot ridge, which once again is firmly ensconced over the Southern Plains, parts of the southwesternmost Corn Belt, and expected in the next few days continue its retrogression west to the western states and then build back in the other direction here uh, for next week. So, Greg, with that building back or building down and then building back that's going to be happening these storm systems do you anticipate to maintain that same dakotas missouri down to the southeast track or are we going to see an adjustment in how these systems are moving across the heartland i, I think generally roughly in that corridor and wouldn't be surprised i know some of the folks who uh, live and die by the numerica models or just haven't uh, don't have the experience the gray hair in my me at least uh to see these things i think there's a little drier too much of a drier tendency and i would be surprised that we see a couple of these kind of storm clusters, these uh, convective uh, batches, if you will, that will get going uh, next week over parts of the Dakotas, Nebraska, the Western and Southwestern Corn Belt, maybe even the Central and Southern Complex spread, you know, uh, intermittently over the next uh, five to 10 days as we again, you know, bring that hot ridge for the commodity guys back, at least when I was cutting my teeth in this stuff. Folks, if you were to throw the number 588 or 594 in a particular upper chart, uh, these guys would immediately know what that meant uh, as it applied to temperatures, heat wave, weather conditions, and how the winds up aloft on the northern and eastern flank of that ridge will generate thunderstorm clusters. So we'll move that heat into the valleys of California. Uh, what is it, 20 straight days in a row, Phoenix, Arizona, of 110 and higher. And that's hot for those folks, too. And then kind of an easing back to the east and uh, southeast and probably some extension into Nebraska, uh, Iowa, and Missouri. Wouldn't be surprised that we're back flirting with the 100-degree mark in some of those western and southwestern most Corn Belt locales, but the atmosphere kind of weakened enough and just gobs of moisture that we, again, get these storm clusters to kind of originate over the Dakotas. They're pretty meaningless in the afternoon, relatively speaking, although folks who've dealt with hail uh, can certainly testify opposite to that. And then they blow up during the course of the overnight and early morning hours into these mushroomed out prolific uh, rainmakers. Wouldn't be surprised. We've got a couple of those somewhere uh, in the western through southern Corn Belt again uh, for next week, along with a building round of heat and humidity. And uh, yeah, if you, if, you, if you made it through okay, you know what? The heat and the dryness and all that, uh, you know, the rains are appreciated, but when they get to eight, 10 inches, that just kind of washes everything out as they're seeing down in Western Kentucky. Well, that is true, Greg. I've got a question for you here about that moisture. You mentioned we've got ample moisture here across the Midwest. It's coming out of the Gulf of Mexico. Those temperatures are very, very warm. And I'm curious with all of that moisture that's, uh, that's coming off the Gulf, why aren't the tropics more active this year or, or are they heating up? 
Uh, well, well, you know, it's more or less like bath water. We've even seen some of these uh, water temps in the shallower waters of the southeastern uh, 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 Gulf of Mexico, the southwest Atlantic, up past the 90-degree mark. And just think if you have warmer uh, to hotter ocean temperatures, uh, just the way the atmosphere is behaving, mind you, this year, you're able to put that warmth inland at, to a certain degree. There's a lot of moisture as well already, typical this time of the year. And you jack up these dew points to 75, 80 degrees. You start feeling the humidity at a about a dew point of 60. Well, it doesn't take much to trip things off, not only from a rain standpoint, but at the same time, you think, well, Greg, it's warm, it's hot, why can't we make rain? Well, at least for the tropics getting busy. No, they're not, because El Nino, and usually a moderate to strong El Nino, trumps everything. Whatever you see you want to look at in the Atlantic or the Pacific, and there's just too much directional wind shear, change of direction with height in the atmosphere, and wind speed shear, same thing. Winds pick up too much, they lop off the chops of thunderstorms. Uh, you just got to bring air in and bring it out on a a relatively regular basis. Uh, and there's also issues off the African coast as well, uh, limiting thunderstorm development and hence tropical system development. There's down out there in the central waters of the Pacific. I anticipate that to stay quiet. The Southwest, though, and the Pacific tend to get busier in an El Nino year. And I wouldn't be surprised. And I think we're going to pencil this on and this week, uh, uh, this week's edition of this week, uh, week in agribusiness, some rain into Southern California, not the monsoon setup on the Southwest, but maybe a little tropical fetch late next week or a little bit beyond in that particular part of the country. So you bring up a good point. Tropics are busy, but out on the left coast versus the Atlantic side. All right, Greg, I was talking to a grower yesterday from Northeast Iowa. He said the moisture is pretty well shut off on him here about three weeks ago, yes. but he's been yes. safe because temps have been cool. Do you anticipate that northern Corn Belt seeing a rise in temperatures here over the next week or 10 days? Yeah, probably the, the western areas, some northern areas, but then again, they're going to be in line. Uh, the right setup where the atmosphere is, oh, is, is cooler up aloft and we get disturbances up aloft to run the top of the crest of the ridge and then drop south and southeast of the train off will be, yeah, there's more heat, there's more humidity, more stress in the back 40 for man and beast as well in those uh, northern areas as well. But you're probably in line for at least a couple of clusters of showers and thunderstorms at some point uh, during next week and beyond. So it's kind of a trade-off. And like I said, if you've been even keeled in the moisture department, haven't had to deal with severe weather, then you're kind of okay. But most, especially those northern through southwestern areas, are still in a world of hurt. All right. Lots to watch in the forecast going forward, folks. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. Jesse Allen's behind the microphone with some great conversations right here. Have a great day, everybody. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure protection services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect that may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org.